I, I was in the pharmacy the other day because uh, I'm going to Germany this weekend with Dave. And so so I'm in there and I'm talking to the sweet little old lady behind the counter. And she we're chatting away and we're talking about the coronavirus and everything else. And uh, I'm like, look, do you have any surgical masks? Because um, just for my own kind of safekeeping and everything, I'm going away this weekend and it might be beneficial to have one. Though since then I've been reading up on about it and they're not really useful. Unless you have it, then it could be useful. So she goes behind the counter and she brings back to pack a two. And there's like the two types of surgical masks. There's just a kind of plain like nylon one or whatever it is. And there's a slightly more fancy one. And it was that one. And I was like, okay, perfect, awesome. And we're chatting away for a little bit more. And you know, she's really sweet, really just a pleasant conversation. And then I say to her, so, so how much uh, will that be? And she goes, well, actually, Jack, how much do you think a pack of these two surgical masks are in the current climate? Oh yeah, I mean, they could really, really fleece you now. I feel like, when she was talking to you, she was probably trying to gauge how much of a hypochondriac you are. Like, if you've been twitching the whole time and, like, you know, half crying about it, she'd have been like, right, that'll be 58 euros. Um, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess 12 euros. Keep going. Um, 20 euros. Uh, keep going. 25 euros. 25 euros. Oh, I got for two masks, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I've seen as well that apparently... Um, hand sanitizer over here is selling in places for about eight quid, but I just I I, I looked to her and I was like, uh, I'm good, thanks. And you've never seen a one eighty on a person from just like a pleasant conversation to this look of sheer disdain for me that I am rejecting this fucking extortionate price that she's throwing my way. And it's probably not the first time that she had that conversation that day. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather just be fucking bedridden for a week. Like, bring on the flu. I will take it head on. Uh, so yeah, yeah I don't. I don't know. It, it depends. You're like <laughs> you're rolling the dice there. Do you feel like you're the sort of person that would perish from this ailment? Uh, well, I know I'm old, but I think 32 is is within a reasonable time frame to be dealing with this, and uh, my immune system isn't too bad. But, you know, I'm sure I'll survive. Um, in the meantime, this is Link to the Cast, your <laughs> weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera, available everywhere good po podcasts are sold. Uh, I am not Dave Ryan. I am, in fact, Mark Robinson. Uh, I'll be seeing Dave this weekend in Germany. Uh, hopefully, between the two of us, we will survive the weekend. But we are going to be surrounded by a lot of wrestling fans. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, by the end of the weekend, half of Germany will be wiped out. But until then, uh, this is also the Roman Reigns of audio. It is Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you? I'm all right. I am not going to Germany. So, I mean, I feel like your predictions of your uh, early demise are probably slightly exaggerated. I feel like the worst thing that's going to happen is you might get the sniffles. Uh, and probably not from coronavirus, probably just from like a common cold or something in Germany. Uh, I just um, imagine, just again, the general hygiene of your atypical wrestling fan. I mean, I'm going to end up with something by the end of the weekend. I know I will. Yeah. Yeah, but if not, uh, I'm going to get my Rolex out. I'm going to flick through. I'm going to go... I mean, Barry, Barry's going with you, isn't he? Okay, yeah, so I've I got, like, Brian I can hit up. Uh, Keith Brony I can hit up. i got Matt Niner I can hit up. <laughs> I'm just thinking, if you and Dave do have an appearance from this virus, I'm going to have to, like... You know, like, the flag bearer in the army? Like, if they get shot, someone else has to pick up the flag and carry it. I feel like that's going to be me. I'm going to be carrying this video game's flag. 
I'll give you like I'd say a two minute tribute at the start of the next show and then just plow straight into five, it. Five years of doing this podcast and I get two minutes. I mean that's I mean one minute for you, one minute for Dave. All right, um, fair enough. Can you at least make sure that it's done to one of those um, WWE tribute packages? Like I want I want a, a compilation clip set to my sacrifice that that I could do for. What's the one that's like I will remember you? That like really cheesy horrible one. Like that I'm singing really off pitch just because I nope, I got nothing. Oh, I mean someone out there is hearing this and they immediately know what the name of that song didn't is. Didn't they I think they, didn't they do the the scientist for Randy Savage and I think that was like insane to think that they would put Coldplay with Randy Savage yet it worked phenomenally well. Did they have his career in reverse, like the scientist video? <laughs> yeah, actually, do you know what? I've just realised the uh, the the painful irony of that because he died in a car accident, and the music video for that is there's there's a car crash. Oh my god, there really is. I don't think they. Re- <laughs> Maybe they did realise that. I, don't know. I mean, I didn't think Randy Savage was Mister Popular around there, but even W. Well, I was going to say even WWE wouldn't be that shameless. <laughs> Maybe he was a massive Coldplay fan. Who knows? Imagine that. Like, somebody as big and tough as, like, Randy Savage, you know, crushing that pepperami-like sticks of meat on an almost hourly basis. And his favourite band is Coldplay. Like, he has a picture of Chris Martin up over his bed. Honestly, I I love it when you um, watch a video uh, or, like, an interview with, like, some heavy-as-fuck metal band and they talk about loving ABBA or, like, whatever else. And they always just talk about, no, fuck it, yeah, like, pop music is great. And it's always that weird juxtaposition that you're not prepared for, but, like, it's all music and it's all relative. So, you know, like, I I love, you know, when um, Kurt Cobain talks about loving um, ABBA or the Beatles. I was going to say that. Didn't, um, wasn't someone from Geffen trying to stop him talking about how much he loved the Beatles and all of the harmonies and double tracking that you did with butch vig on the record was like oh, i was just trying to be like you know john lennon and they were trying to be like no man you're like the leader of generation x nobody wants to hear you talk about how much you fucking love when i'm 64 mate so <laughs> but, like, wasn't it I, I think wasn't he like apprehensive to it and butch vig kept saying it's like oh well you know lennon did it so yeah. well no, that, that's how he got him to do stuff but like yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think the record company at the time when he would talk in interviews about like in the beals i think because everything about that sort of weird Generation X personality of being like counterculture and just generally sort of, you know, against everything that your mum and dad would listen to, like the Beatles absolutely fell into that boomer category of something that they would have grown up on. So yeah. Gen X just blowing away the sort of boomer, you know, reality of, of the world. They didn't want people to be then referencing back to the Beatles. But you know what? I mean, you pick up a Beatles record now and you're like, shit, this is still really good. So, yeah. But it's also, it's ridiculous because if you look at like the four pillars of the Seattle scene, they're all melodic as fuck. Oh, incredibly. And like, and like Alice in Chains in particular, the harmonies between Lane Stanley and Cantrell, like they're insane. They're incredible. Well, all when you, thirds and fifths and whatever else. Think about this though. Like you could take the heaviest of heavy metal. If there's no melody to attach onto whether it's like guitar or something then it's not going to be that successful but like the most successful metal bands of all time are unquestionably metallica and iron maiden right and they both have incredibly melodic guitar players in the band and they both have front men who have got like incredibly unique singing voices and and the way that they pick notes out above and, and they sing and uh, melody is incre- incredibly important in music and I, I just think this it's everything i hate about um 
like formless jazz and stuff like that where it's just like the melody is like a one trumpet and it's not sticking to any particular pattern but we're all sort of pre-programmed to accept like melodic and progressive melodic things in 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 a certain format like and and it doesn't matter what type of music it is every song that you hear there'll be a melody in there that will latch onto you if it's popular if it isn't popular you probably won't hear it anyway to this day i think my favorite description of anything ever is when noel gallagher talks about jazz and it's like it's just it's four musicians playing four completely like different songs in four different time signatures and yeah the, it's, it's jazz what it, what it is usually is i mean there is like a lack of boundaries and a sort of interesting kind of approach to music i'm sorry get... lack of boundaries you're talking about eurovision there <laughs> no i'm talking about well clearly the boundaries in eurovision are important because everybody who shares a border boundary with each other ends up there he for is each other. there he is uh that's why we are on a tiny island and everybody hates us but then you know some of that's colonialism anyway moving swiftly on yeah like jazz is just it's usually incredible musicians just showing off how good their music is over a sort of loose beat in a weird time signature with a drummer playing percussion on brushes it's like fuck off mate get some drumsticks all right like i don't want to hear your brush nonsense plug that double bass in as well crank that up i want to hear what the bass line is i don't want to hear some like guy of a trumpet just going mental for like three and a half minutes you know it's just, oh, it's too much for me. And I'm sorry, people that like jazz uh, probably aren't listening to this podcast, but if they do hear it, I'm sure they're going to tell me why jazz is amazing. And it just ain't for me. So, yeah. So this is a preview of our upcoming music podcast that you can listen to in about three years' time when we get round to it. But in the meantime, Jack, happy birthday. <laughs> Are we going to be breaking down the greatest hits of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane? <laughs> I mean, someone's got to fucking do it. Uh, I thought we'd be more like Radiohead, like Nirvana, <laughs> Weezer, you know, all that kind of shit we listened to growing up. Oh, man. Uh, also, growing up, we played the PlayStation 2, which today turned oh. 20 years old. What as a of console. Today of this recording. I'm looking at mine right now across the room. You still have yours for oh, me. Oh, it's beautiful. Look at it. It's sat over there just, just You say beautiful. I would imagine it's covered in a few inches of dust at this point. It's quite dusty, but the good thing about it is I gave my um my first ps2 like my chunky ps2 to my friend adam walker because i inherited from somebody the slimline ps2 and it's gray so if it is really dusty i've got no concept of how dusty <laughs> it's because it's gray so it just looks like part of the uh the paint job as it were um your earliest memory of having playstation 2 i mean it's just the initial incredible excitement um and anticipation for the console because the first home console i had was a sony playstation and i you know it was my parents at the time they they weren't earning a particularly higher wage either of them so it was a big deal for them to buy me a playstation and like i was eternally grateful for it and and i loved that fucking console to death you know that and my game boy were basically my formative years of getting me through sort of you know, like years five, six, seven, eight, nine, and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the PS2 came out. I probably had to wait about a year or so, and yeah, just unpacking it, and just it looked so sleek, and like I just, I, I was just so incredibly hyped um, when I got it. How about you, mate? What was? So I don't, I don't remember getting a PlayStation Two directly at launch. 
Um, not that I recall. I think it was, was probably the Christmas of that year or the year after. That's what I think, yeah. I, I can't remember. When um, was the EU launch? Have you got that information in front of you? Or... I don't, but I will get that for I'm you. I'm going to Google that. In... You you carry on talking because I've, I've banged on about my uh, my PlayStation uh, but what uh, what what I remember, because I at the time I was still you know heavily invested with my Nintendo sixty four and my Game Boy Color because I was still playing the mm. the Pokemon games at the time. Uh, so I was very Same. much like I had my original PlayStation, but I wasn't playing it as much just because of the N sixty four and um and and because of Pokemon basically. But I remember, and I, I think the other thing with me as well is a lot of the hype coming up to the launch of the PlayStation 2 was because of Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, Or specifically the fact that if you got Zone of Enders, it would come with a demo for for Metal Gear Solid 2. And I, as as we've documented before, I just, I didn't care about MGS at the time. And I wouldn't say I care about it as much now, but, you know, I at least have some level of appreciation for it. I didn't care for it at the time, and there was nothing really at that time where a PlayStation 2 was like a necessary purchase for me. But I remember the first game that I played, and I was talking about this earlier on Twitter, uh, was a game called The Bouncer, which I think was a Square Enix game, I want to say. Uh, it certainly visually looked like a Square Enix game. And it was a uh, like a 3D beat, beat-em-up, so like a kind of Streets of Rage, but in, in 3D. And I remember at the time, A, being blown away by how it looked, and B, just the fact that just it was a, a beat-em-up in a 3d environment and and i love streets of rage growing up and i came back to that game about 10 years later and <laughs> yeah uh, it didn't age particularly well uh it played like trash it still looked pretty cool for a, an early ps2 game but it played like trash so uh, um, and that was my earliest memory yeah it was november 2000 which means i probably got it for christmas 2001 because i got it with the first playstation 2 game i played was tony hawk's pro skater 3 Oh hell yeah! I was so happy because um, I I never actually owned the initial Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, but I I had Tony Hawk's Pro Skater two and probably put in like hundreds and hundreds of hours of my life playing that wonderful video game. So like you've got a brand new console and the brand new Tony Hawk on it, and I was not disappointed. I played the shit out of that game. Probably got that year's FIFA as well, and then. Metal Gear Solid 2 launched, I want to say, like, the March, kind of April time after that. And, yeah, that that just absolutely knocked me for six, blew me away, because I was a, a huge Metal Gear Solid fan at the time. And uh, I, I think it's weird, because when you buy it and play stuff when you're, when you're younger, and you there's something that you love... When there's a sequel or anything that's coming out to follow it up, you, the the level of excitement that you get, like, I almost miss it. Like, there's not many things that get me anywhere near as excited as I, as I was when I was younger because there was such a paucity of, like, news. Like, you had to buy a PlayStation magazine or something to read it because, you know, there were really, like, proto-versions of websites like IGN and stuff around at the time or, or whatever you know, on the internet that you would have got your video game news from, like, oh, there's this sort of, like, blurry image from a game or whatever, it's coming out at this point, and there was all a bit of an element of mystery about it, um, so, like, now you know so much information about a game before it comes out that it's, it's kind of, you're excited, but there's not the same level, but yeah, I remember ripping open Metal Gear Solid 2, 
just playing the living shit out of that game and absolutely loving every minute yeah so for me the the whole kind of like sequel that got me hyped was was grand theft auto vice city oh what a a game and like i mean you can talk about grand theft auto 3 and you know among the many reasons why the ps2 is is looked back so fondly like you've got that trilogy of games there in gta 3 vice city and san andreas uh, which really, you know, the, the the sandbox genre genre is is just indebted to that series of course, uh, alone. Yeah. And I remember just the the hours that I wasted on GTA Three and and Vice City specifically, just fucking around and you know basically playing God mode, creating tanks. And uh, my little sister, who's about two years younger than me, so she would have been, uh, I want to say maybe like nine or ten at the time. And I was about 12 or 13 and I would just create a bunch of tanks and give the controller to her and just watch her going around blowing shit up. And I was having the time of my life with it. And it was just a whole new way of playing a video game where, you know, it wasn't the, a, a kind of direct objective of go from point A to point B or go from left to right. It was just, well, yeah, this is, is like the mainline quest that you need to do. But in the meantime, just come and do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, it was it was mind bending. And you know the thing is, it's the most wrong I've ever been in my life about something is I love GTA and GTA two. When GTA yep. three came out and I saw that it wasn't a top down thing anymore, I was like, Oh, they've ruined it and I like I seeing what, what like I sort of thought it was, I was like, Oh, they've just made it look like any other game. Ah, oh, so I don't want to play this. And I just, I'd passed it by just through like the stubbornness and arrogance of being like a 14 year old who 13 maybe, or however old I was, thinking I was right about this. How dare they change my beloved Grand Theft Auto? Uh, and then maybe six months after it came out, I went around a, a good friend, uh, Matthew Biggs's house, and he was playing it. And I saw about two minutes of the game, Mark, and I was like, motherfucker, I need to buy this. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, what well, is if you go back and play like the original GTA now, uh, that fucking thing is impossible to play. Like the it camera is. is insane. But I still, there's still a level. I have an appreciation of a lot of for wasted it. Wasted time. I have an appreciation for it, but boy, that camera just fucking flings about from left to right. One of my fondest memories with the PS2, obviously, like, between us, a very personal connection. Uh, the many, many hours that we wasted on the likes of SSX3 Hell yeah. and Tony Hawk's. Yep. Just, you know, trying to one-up each other. And, yeah, like, many times we'd go around each other's houses and we were just trying to kind of outdo each other. And, you know, that was combined with the, the N64 as well, with Mario Kart and whatever else. Um, and, yeah, just I always enjoyed that. I remember you guys coming over. I can't remember if it was after like way after the, the ps2 life cycle but we'd still get tekken 5 out and we'd still play that and you know we were playing ssx3 for years later um i mean and... i if mark if we were in the same room right now with my dusty ps2 i would <laughs> ask if you fancy the game of ssx3 and i would be offended if you didn't i think one of the other massive things as well that it has been reported like i've been reading a lot of the uh, kind of think pieces about the ps2 today and they've all brought it up and it is a fair point that sometimes i guess may be overlooked or immediately considered because you just straight away think about the games but the fact that it had a dvd player Massive. and the fact the fact that the ps2 itself wasn't that much more expensive than the dvds that were out there for sale which really pissed off sony um like the the actual kind of electronic side 
that that was a huge thing and and people were talking about the fact that it was the first time that the video game console went from the bedroom to the living room and and i think that is absolutely uh, absolutely true and i think that you see that as well in the fact that you start started to see uh, games like buzz and guitar hero as well that were trying to kind of be or certainly like buzz in trying to have a more kind of family oriented experience um that you could have in the living room you know it really bred creativity uh, and yeah, and I obviously use my PS2 as a DVD player and, uh, you know, that kind of yeah. opened up this whole new way that you could look at a video game console. I think there are two other factors as well. Um, one is that the the competition for for Sony, the PS2, was, was paltry at best, right? Because you had a, a Dreamcast that they'd kind of rushed out where they'd eaten such a, a, a ton of shit, uh, Sega and the Saturn. So they kind of rushed the Dreamcast out, and it was good, but like it didn't really hit. It didn't really resonate, and it it, it they didn't really have the money at the time to really heavily market it. And even then, sponsoring yeah, Arsenal couldn't help them. Even sponsoring Arsenal couldn't help them though. Um, even though that I oh, actually that gold kit with Dreamcast on it, I, I hate to say it, because I'm I'm far from an Arsenal fan, but <laughs> it's it's really fucking cool. Um, so yeah, and they had the Sega on the home shirt as well, didn't they? Um, yeah. And then obviously the GameCube wasn't released until a good year and a half uh, in the EU after the PlayStation 2. So it was like, right, so they've got this massive window of a console that's already been out and people know what it's about and it's failed. And a console that hasn't really uh, hasn't really had any sort of like news or anyone really knowing entirely what's going on with it. And that's kind of just, you know, like, way on the horizon so here we go here we've got this beautiful gap for the ps2 and the key thing as well aside, i mean dvds by the way i'm putting number one if this was like family fortunes <laughs> of reasons that i thought the ps2 did do so well dvds number one the big gap between any kind of competition before xbox came along and and before the gamecube and post the dreamcast and the third one for me is the fact that you could play ps1 games on it because it's just immediate then you're like and you could use your ps1 controllers mark even you could just plug and play ps1 controller straight into it so it's like right all i need to do is get this new system i don't need to buy any new controllers i don't i don't think you didn't even even needed to buy new memory cards no i think Did, you could still use the original memory cards you as didn't well. need to buy new games for the time being you obviously like you would get a new game and it came out but basically it would do everything your PS1 did, but, but better, and it was a DVD player. Like, you just think, like, this is a no-brainer. I need this piece of entertainment equipment in my house. And the thing is, as well, like, you think about the generations either side, and it seems like such an alien concept. Like, you didn't see it from, say, you know, the Nintendo to the Super Nintendo to the N64. You didn't get any of that. You didn't get the backwards compatibility. And then you certainly didn't get it afterwards with, say, you know, the PS3 and the PS4 and, you know, the multitude multitude of issues that we had when it came to backwards compatibility and yeah. you know, uh, controller accessibility. And it's astonishing that 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 happened there at that time and then no one kind of figured to do that afterwards and to do it as successfully uh, as sony did and you're absolutely right and the you know the backwards compatibility was uh was a massive thing because obviously you know most people still had their their 
cat back catalogue of games and there were still so many games from the original PlayStation you think about the Final Fantasy series alone oh, um, oh hell yeah I've still got want to keep holding to yeah I'm sure most people do so yeah I, I think that's an, uh, a point that can't be uh, overlooked for you uh, you know we were talking about this earlier on, on Twitter but we can have the conversation here uh, a top three or four PlayStation 2 games for you of all time yeah, I think I said on Twitter earlier, um, Final Fantasy X is just uh, it. It took it took everything I loved about the series and put it on a new console. And for the first time, you had um, you had like the spoken word in the game. The characters spoke, and it just brought everything to life. The graphics were just unbelievable. Like it didn't matter what console. Um, or what generation console Squenix were working on at the time, they just seemed to bring a level of graphical detail and fidelity and made their games look like no one else. So, like, it really stood out. And, yeah, it, it's a fantastic RPG. Still one of my favourite battle systems. Like, it allowed you to be really strategic. And uh, I think it's a really interesting story. It's it, it feels like a very anime kind of story. It's like this you know guy who's basically a, a, a vision essentially who's he's been transported through through like his like dad who's created this like weird time space rift um because he's inhabited the, the a giant monster mark you're probably rolling your eyes right now <laughs> i actually somewhat know the story of final fantasy 10 because i've started that game i think about on five separate occasions yeah. and haven't made it past the first hour but i have a general idea of the story but it's like so you've got the guy who really doesn't know where he, why he's there doesn't know what he's doing and then the main character her purpose is to bring forth this like final summon that will take down this giant beast that's kind of in the, the the soul of um Tidus, who's the main character's dad has inhabited and it, it's kind of like the whole game is the two of them just really struggling with their own identity Tidus not knowing why he's there and then yuna just like is this really the right thing to do am i willing to kind of sacrifice myself for the cause so I think that from that perspective of just being really generally a confused teenager and stuff by the time I played it and, you know, having two main characters who didn't really know where they were in the world as well. So I think I kind of connected with it from that point. MGS3, love it. Brilliant. Like the most, the best self-contained story in any Metal Gear Solid game. Uh, just a very interesting take on the stealth genre, like focusing more on sort of camouflage taking the map element away making you be a bit more tactical some really cool stuff with survival some really cool stuff with uh with bosses like that you didn't really have in the previous games and just generally the look and feel of the game as like a sort of jungle action stealth game which no one had really done before um and obviously the snake eater song that i'm sure you've heard mark isn't is an absolute triumph and probably maybe my favorite self-contained video game theme song ever i mean one of the best bond theme songs ever oh it's just like yeah I, hideo kojima you can tell he's so singularly obsessed with a sort of james bondy kind of spy feel and like every game you can unlock snake wearing a tuxedo for instance which is pretty damn cool uh and then i i think earlier did i say ssx3 because i just wasted I say wasted, I ploughed so much time into that game and I'm not ashamed of how much time I ploughed into it really because it's just a 
fucking fantastic self-contained amazing world and mountains and and snowboarding and and frustration but ultimately joy and yeah i i think it's my favorite uh probably my favorite action sports game and i love all of the tony hawk games dearly but yeah um and those are my three that i chose earlier and yeah uh having to do a top three is difficult having to do a top five would be hard a top 10 would be fair but then we may be here all day with me talking but what are yours mark makes two of us in fairness like i I spent some time making my top 10 but i could easily take five of those games out and put another five in absolutely Uh, i think without question like gta vice city is to this day still my favorite grand theft auto game um there's something about like i mean there's something about the the style of gta that it's so you can so put it in that miami vice setting and it just it fits seamlessly and they've obviously been able to adapt it and put it into like early 90s la and everything they did with gta 4 in a more kind of like metropolitan new york setting um, but I just, I don't know, th- th- that game drips with personality and I, I love the the story and I guess part of it is that the whole rags to riches trope that they go with wasn't completely like burnt out by that point. No, um, and I think but- to- the thing with Tommy is he just come out of prison and kind of the thing that I liked about him is that they didn't really humanise him. They kind of just made him like a bit of a maniac. He was a bit of a sort of unhinged, you know, Al Capone and Scarface kind of Al Capone and Scarface. <laughs> it's not Al Capone. <laughs> oh dear, that's a terrible thing. Um, oh Al Pacino, there you go. Absolutely. What am I doing? Uh, Al Pacino and Scarface kind of character, uh, and that to me, like, you're not then thinking about like. The, the human element you're just enjoying it it's like a wha- there's more of a wacky arcade feel to it and i think the serious route that gta shifted to especially with gta 4 is then what like gives you all of the gta likes with like wackiness most notably of course the saints row series so yeah i i just think and you know there's something about that era mark right with the music and the fashion and everything like the 80s has that sort of retro feel you know whenever you put a, a film and you sell it in the 80s you just immediately get color you get culture you get sound and and i think gta uh vice city capture that perfectly right yeah and it's like well i think one of the big appeals with stranger things has been that exact thing where it captures that color and tone of the 80s yeah. so you know vividly um and it has motorbikes and that was all i wanted from oh. gta 3 Dude, I remember when I first got that game, um, me and our pal uh, Andrew Drewman, I, I just, we, the first thing we did was find a motorbike, flipped it on, it was playing Two Minutes to Midnight by Iron Maiden, <laughs> and we were just wheeling around the whole of Vice City, That's or, or the only bit that we could at the time, because it hadn't fully opened up with Two Minutes to Midnight cracking out, and I had myself a ball. Also, like, I can't really say anything more that you didn't say about SSX3, but to this day, like one of the most perfect pieces of music that accompanies a, a, a game, 
and I'll be able to talk about this with the other one as well, but, you know, whenever the bitter end by placebo comes yes. on and you are fucking bombing it down a mountain and the, the way that they dynamically incorporate the music into that game and how parts of the track will either cut out depending on if you completely wipe out but like when you nail it and you're flying in the air and the music kind of fades out and then you land like this incredible trick and then the whole track kind of comes back on uh, there is to this day there are very few things that nails that kind of adrenaline rush and experience like ssx3 does agreed it felt uh, and this is a, a strange thing to say but it felt like the environment was djing for you yeah, when yeah. you went through a tunnel, like you got the low end of the track, you got the drums, you got the bass, there was no vocals, there was no guitar. When you went high up in the air, you just got like the high, you got the cymbals, you got the guitar, you got the vocals. And then as you came back down, all of the bass returned to the music. It just, it, the environment shaped the sound and it felt, honestly, it did. It felt like it was mixing it for you and it was perfect. Yeah, like in terms of sound design, I still think to this day it's one of the best games that does sound design uh specifically yeah i got shout out my boy dj atomic as well and the fact as well like the fact that you can go from the top of the mountain all the way down to the bottom in one go if you want like how they connect that entire mountain together i i i am clamoring i'm i'm one of you know i get the whole some people on for hd remakes or the burnout by hd remakes but my god if i could get ssx3 on the switch in a hd remake i would be a very happy boy um you know ssx the the kind of reboot filled some of that niche on the ps3 for me but um yeah i could definitely definitely go for a, a switch port of ssx3 and then finally burnout 3 uh takedown i mean i enjoyed Burnout 1 and 2, but they definitely feel limited, to say the best. But Burnout 3, just like SSX, got that speed and got that just adrenaline. And, you know, it, unlike other racing games, and by that point, there was a real kind of focus on that, you know, simulation racer with, with Gran Turismo that just took things a little bit too seriously. And Burnout just went in the other direction and was just about, you know, speed and, you know, actively just looking to cause as much chaos and as mayhem as possible. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I still think I'll put on Burnout every kind of year or two uh, and I still just have a blast of it. There is nothing more satisfying than the takedown mode in Burnout 3, right? Yeah, and I just, I, I you know what, like I was playing um, Burnout Paradise a bit last year and... I, I kind of got saw what they were going for, but there was something that they didn't quite get with that part of the game compared to, to Burnout 3. I really like Burnout Paradise, but it isn't Burnout 3. And at the time when it came out, I bounced off it, and I didn't come back to it until maybe a year or so later, because it is... It, it Burnout 3 just nailed that formula so well that you almost were kind of like, I mean, I wanted something else but more or better or evolved or something like that and didn't really get it. What we got is arguably, you know, say if Burnout Paradise was your first Burnout game, you probably might prefer it because you kind of have a sort of free exploration. But to me, the most frustrating thing to this day with that game is having to constantly check the map because there's no real good map options for where you are unless you learn the city inside and out, which is pretty difficult because unlike a GTA game, it doesn't have like great features, especially when you're in the downtown mode of, of really letting you know where you are. Uh, but yeah, Burnout 3, having everything just be self-contained, the tracks be self-contained, the crash mode be self-contained, 
I, I actually preferred it. It's one of the few times where I prefer it to a full open world. So, yeah. What a game. Uh, I definitely, yeah, that's in my top ten. As I say, it might crack my top five. But it, it could get emotional if I was thinking about a whole... I could do a top 25 and all honesty, but yeah. <laughs> any any left field choices? Anything a little bit out there? Because like the, the, the PS2 back catalogue is so friggin' massive um that you know today i was seeing people talking about their favorite games and i was hearing of games that i'd simply i've never heard of or i knew nothing about um so i have a few but i was wondering if you have any kind of left field choices that um might not be most apparent for a top 10 or a top 20 i don't know if they're left field i could do a, a few quick hitters the simpsons hit and run i love yes yes uh the simpsons <laughs> basically the simpsons gta uh so i mean how does it get any better than that I, this, you know i'm surprised they never did a, a south park version of that it seemed so did but it kind of no it was not it was terrible it wasn't was good it no. was on the n64 right uh where there was like the the main bad guys in it were the turkeys and yeah stuff, no that was that was just no let's, let's let's never talk of that game it was terrible it wasn't great uh i love tekken tag tournament because I was a huge mark for Tekken on a PlayStation, and it was like, oh, I get two people. Brilliant. I can have Paul Phoenix, and I can have Laura as well. Amazing. Um, More importantly, it had the Tekken Bowl mode, which was another pastime of ours that we uh, we wasted way too many hours on. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but it was... Um, it's just a very... It's just a very fun, arcade Tekken game. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, there's a few things popping around my head. Obviously, like I liked all of the... You know, the SmackDown series of, of wrestling games I liked quite a lot. Um, obviously, very into all of the Tony Hawk games, but uh, we've done a we've done a bit on it. I managed to get it over eventually, but aggressive in line to this day is still my, <laughs> my favorite completely under-the-radar extreme sports game, and it's just one of those ones that honestly doesn't get the love that it deserves. And I think to a lot of people, if I said aggressive in line, they would say that was an acceptable left field choice to this podcast. Maybe not if you're a regular listener and you heard me gush for half an hour about it, but like that to me launched the open world extreme sports game, uh, even before Tony Hawk was doing it. So yeah, fucking cool. Love that game. What, what about you, Mark? Have you got anything? So the original Jack and Daxter, uh, oh, yeah, I, great game. Yeah, I really liked. I really just. I don't know. It, I guess um, that game was to. I guess you could say to a certain degree, open world. You could kind of go where you want. Obviously, following the linear path, but you could come backtrack and forth and whatever. And um, just that world was just a fun world to explore. And uh, and I guess it was kind of like the the evolution for me from like the Crash Bandicoot series, where that was more kind of focused on going up and down or left and right um but you had that kind of over the shoulder camera yeah it just i don't know there was something about the game that always kind of gravitated towards me and i always would come back to it every now and again um i guess not so left field but devil may cry yeah i think that that original still like the 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 style and the the swag that that game has and the the combat just it completely grabbed me and um it was kind of my go-to from capcom that like it was the the other side the other coin to um resident evil where i didn't kind of gravitate towards them because i wasn't a horror guy but it took elements of that but went more in the kind of action fantasy realm that i could definitely gravitate towards and i yeah i always got on board with that silent um, hill 2 by the way that if we were to want to talk about horror game on the playstation 2. well i mean if dave was here he would have already been gushing about <laughs> it till uh yeah one yeah, hell that of was a definitely, game 
Yeah, and Max Payne. Um, I oh, f- did that originate on the PC? I played that on the PC. I never actually played it. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's a, it's a, it's originally a PS2 game. It's kind of like how a bunch of people played Half Life Two, mm. uh, or half, sorry, uh, Half Life the original on the PlayStation Two first before before the PS PC. Sure. And I think it's the same case with uh, Max Payne as well. But that's where I I came into it, and you know, Bullet Time and just that film noir style. Um, I just yeah I'd never played anything like it and there are still a few games there are there are a lot of games that took that bullet time idea uh there are a few games that had a kind of griminess to them I guess that Max Payne had yeah uh I'm just gonna say like three more titles uh Bully right yeah Bully of course great game Shadow of the Colossus which is just recently naturally naturally I think you would I think you would see that on a lot of top three lists yeah I mean it's art completely yeah. <laughs> uh, as video games and stuff uh yeah uh and final fantasy 12 because uh it got released and then the ps3 came out and it kind of was buried and again has recently been given the remake treatment for the ps4 and people are like oh shit this is actually a fucking good final fantasy game the story ain't up to much but the game is hell- fun as hell to play so yeah i could talk about the ps2 literally all day and um, maybe i think it it is my favorite console, but you know what's running it real close is the Switch at the moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the meantime, speaking about Final Fantasy, they just went and they shadow dropped a demo for Final Fantasy VII, the remaster, on uh, on Monday morning, which for everyone in the GMT time zone, uh, they were furious because they knew that not only would they have to wait till they got home, they would also then have to wait for the 7.8 gigs of that demo to download. Um, and if anyone knows anything about the PS4 download speeds, they're not great. Uh, fortunately for me, my girlfriend was still in bed, so I was like, hey, would you mind downloading this for me for, for when I get home? I mean, that's what relationships are um, that about. That is what relationships are about. So Shout it's the least out to Maria, can do. It's the least she can do because she's been playing the hell out of Tetris Effect for the last couple of weeks. I see. Oh, God, she hates me as well. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, let's let's jump right into it. The, the context I always give, um, if anyone's heard this show before, I didn't grow up loving Final Fantasy. It took me a few years after. I didn't play Final Fantasy VII properly till I was about 22, 23 uh, on the PS Vita. That was my way that I came into it. But I definitely like Final Fantasy VII, and it's definitely a game that I can see why it gets the the love and the reverence it does. You, you, Jack, you definitely grew up playing this game and have a love and fondness for it, to say the least. Uh, yeah, I, I love the Final Fantasy series from, yeah. from top to tail. FF7 was the first one I really played um, in line with a lot of uh, a lot of kids, you know, who were kind of sort of 10, 11 when it came out. Um, I don't know if it kick-started my sort of pseudo-weebiness of liking a lot of Japanese things. Uh, I don't know if it was Final Fantasy that kind of brought that out, but I, I feel like it was a, a massive contributor to that, because I'm like, oh, wow, wonder what else is cool from Japan that I can sink my teeth into. Uh, and then, yeah, then you find Miyazaki, and then it's just, uh, <laughs> you are... You just go from Yeah, there. you just go yeah. full weeb at that point. Like, it's, it's well, let's awesome. just let's just jump straight into it then. Like, what do you think? I mean, you are the one out of the two of us that I think is going to be more giving the hot takes. I do have certain things to, to say, but I'm really curious to, to see what you think about it, considering, um, you know, you're just more indebted to, the, to this game than I am. I mean, first of all, off the bat, it looks incredible. I it just looks amazing. Like 
the city is just every bit as sort of like dirty industrial kind of you know everything you wanted it to be everything you sort of read into what you were thinking when you were kind of growing up and you had like barely the graphics like the train pulling up and stuff like that that's a that's like a big moment that's the start of the final fantasy 7 and i just thought they've absolutely nailed it with the way that it looks i mean cloud's hair is as every bit as ridiculous as you would expect it to look like in a higher resolution graphics uh and i just think like just from a purely look and feel point of view i do feel immediately home in the game um i i you know it's obviously it's a very limited sample size but it did get me very excited to play the actual game i think pretty much any time you dig into a, a final fantasy game the tough part is always learning the combat system so it's kind of like taken a little bit from final fantasy 15 with the combat system and a kind of character switch like with you and Barrett and stuff. Uh, by the way, how cool is Barrett in the game? He's exactly as fucking surly and badass as I would expect him to be, right? Like, he just, he just seems really cool. He's very much the yin to Cloud's yang, because Cloud, for me, very much... There's a lot of that 90s anime tortured soul character where there's a lot of, like, not actually saying anything when someone says something and kind of like, ah, um... Uh, and it's fucking infuriating where Barrett's just, you know, big and bold and, and yeah, he's he, he's a lot more tolerable. He's having none of Cloud shit in this. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just thought, like, immediately thinking to myself, like, I, I, I love how they've just made him, like, this fucking... Because you, you, you're just reading text, aren't you? So you can kind of... You can read a tone in, but I guess I never really read in the tone that him just basically like this guy just shut the fuck up and carry on running and come and help me out fighting off these soldiers please uh that's that's kind of the way he is in the game so yeah i love it i love their interactions and and stuff I, yeah the the only thing for me that i i find difficult is yeah just it will take a while i think to get used to the way the battle system is because obviously final fantasy 7 the original game is like a a very old school JRPG of, you know, sort of turn-based combat. You equip this, equip that kind of thing. And this is a lot more sort of like, it's it's like a hybridized version, isn't it? Of like, you, it is a bit turn-based, but then, you know, because you've got like certain amounts of time before attacks and stuff and you do set things up. But there is a lot more of an active battle system. And I don't know how I feel about that, but I feel like, do we think the old JRPG battle things are so outdated at this point that they kind of can't do that anymore? So, oh, this fucking thing, right? This this is where my hot takes come in. Uh, the first time that I encountered this hybrid of elements of the, the original or old school turn-based combat system and a more kind of Twitch action style combat was in Nino Kuni. And... I really didn't like it in Nino Kuni. I felt like it was just I had too many systems that I had to juggle between and I had too many different moving parts I had to work with. And I really like at the time was just like just give me one or the other. And the thing about this game in particular and specifically when playing Cloud is that 
in the kind of new mode, if you will, he has this big sword and you can hammer square and you can, you know, slash and hack and whatever. And I, in my mind, A, I want to be able to jump. It's just, I keep pressing X thinking that I should be able to jump and I can't do it. And B, I'm just waiting to, I, I feel like I should just have more options in terms of this being like a hack and slash game. Just because, you know, I, I don't get it when I'm playing as Barrett, but with Cloud specifically I do. And it'll be interesting to see how I fare with other characters. And between that and between constantly going into the menu to go and stock up on potions because the fucking scorpion was just destroying me. It, it really kept taking me out of the action where... You know, the work that goes into and like, you know, just the, the cinematics and the presentation of the action, certainly when things get really lively. I don't want to be faffing around in the menus, picking spells and and, and um, potions and whatnot. And I really don't like that hybrid. Now, from what I understand, there's going to be an option in the, the full release where you can kind of just do one or the other if you want to. And I'll be curious to see like how that goes and if I kind of lean more towards one or the other but that just as it is currently it's just not doing it for me yeah i i, I get it um the thing that i find hard and it was fun, something that kind of irritated me in final, F uh, final fantasy 15 because like you said about you know just being absolutely messed up by a scorpion there is a option to dodge and you can like it, it's about timing and you can like parry attacks and dodge attacks and it's something that I really don't like having to think about in a Final Fantasy game. Like, I, I don't want to sit there and be constantly having a time pressing a dodge button to then go and set up attacks and stuff. But then that just comes down to a preference. I just think, like, the whole reactor thing and just the way Midgar looks and everything like that is enough for me to be still extremely excited about what this game can be. And, you know part of me hopes that whatever the feedback is online whatever the buzz is online about the way that the battle system works might prompt them to to either change it or then as you say if there are then options in the game to either switch it from like a live to or a turn-based battle i think that'd be pretty cool but yeah well the game the game has gone gold now so uh, i don't think we'll be seeing any kind of radical wholesale changes to the system at this point yeah but yeah i i think as well like I always have this issue with over-the-shoulder third-person games where I always want the camera to be about an, another 10 feet back from where it is on the, the character. And I, you know, I imagine a lot of this is due to you only want the camera to show so much on the screen at one time because otherwise the game just it has too much it has to try it and too much information it has to try and present. Sure. Uh, and certainly with a game like this, this Final, Fantasy, Final Fantasy VII remaster, like... Between all the particle effects that appear on the screen and just, you know, the sheer, like, just how it looks, you know, there's only way so much, there's only so much they can have on the screen, so I get that. But because of that, the issue that you run into, certainly with, um, even though this isn't a hack and slash, but just the way that the kind of new score combat is, you constantly run into the issue that when you have more than two enemies on the screen, half the time you can't see all the enemies that you want to see and you know you'll get blindsided by attack from behind or the, to yeah. the left of you and 
you know, you had games like Zelda that got around this with the Z-targeting to give you a lot more kind of spatial awareness. Or you're playing an actual hack-and-slash game where just you... The kind of range and of your attacks were just a lot more that, you know, you couldn't really ever get blindsided because just how much was going on. And I'm really curious to see how, you know, when this game gets particularly more challenging later on than you have enemies on the screen like I'm, I'm curious to see what will be like the max amount of enemies you'll ever see at one time because i just don't think that what there is at the moment you know if you have more than say like four or five and certainly if they're kind of more like stronger enemies uh that's i just i just don't see the fun in that i see the challenge in it but i don't see the fun in it yeah and then that comes to it just being a like again like i was saying about it just being a dodge fest where you're then just constantly trying to evade attacks exactly before you can get any attacks off yourself but then at that point you know when things do get a bit thick and fast you would think maybe well i've got three uh members of my party at that point so then maybe that they're the ones that can take care of x amount of um of, of potential enemies yeah I, I guess you i guess you'd have like uh barrett with his gun being more kind of feel like crowd control and stuff so yeah i, yeah. I, I guess there could be that tactic that it did improve play. when you got barrett when you had barrett and cloud fighting at the same time and you could switch back and forth like i i quite liked using barrett more than more than using cloud and and i think that was a bit a bit better at that point so i think that will improve it uh again i think the sort of streets of Midgar are very claustrophobic as well, Mark. So, like, what you're saying about the camera being tight, I think when you get into different environments, maybe... Um, I know they say that the majority of the first chapter, if not all of the first chapter, is kind of based just in Midgar. But I think that for that point, there might be more open environments for you to kind of work with, and it might not feel as reined in, and then maybe if they're doing like extra parts or whatever it'll kind of feel a bit better when you have more of a of a world around you more of an adventure to it maybe but yeah Yeah. it's still enough to get me really excited like i mean it would have to be pretty bad for me not to be excited. yeah i like the the cinematics and the presentation alone makes me want to see just what that game looks like you know and i'm thinking back to certain scenes in Midgar and later on in the game and I'm thinking about what they're going to look like based off of what we got in this you know 90 minute demo and absolutely like I I want to see what they do and the one thing I guess we didn't mention is the soundtrack and the kind of modernization of that soundtrack is uh you know like even for me only playing through that game once a lot of that soundtrack is still very much burned in my brain yeah. and uh you know obviously I, i'm pretty pretty sure we all want to hear what one wing danger will sound like in 2020 yeah it it the soundtrack is a masterpiece and i think uh in the demo you kind of got a nice little bit of uh of a preview of what it's going to be but because all of the demo is just pure action and pure frantic um encounters i think i'd be quite nice to get like a a dissection of like some of the more the karma moments of the soundtrack some of the you know like the golden sources of this world kind of uh, and just hearing all of those notes and evocative uh sounds and and swells of music again that you know yamatsu is just a genius composer so it's cool that somebody's kind of have a modern take on on his original soundtrack so yeah yeah just excited mate very excited honestly can't wait 
Uh, I have been playing over the last week or so. Uh, last week they dropped the Mega Man Zero Collection for, uh, I think, all platforms. But I've been playing it on, on the Switch. How many and... Mega Man games have you completed? <laughs> so, uh, what, out of this collection so far? Out of this collection so far, yeah. Okay, so there's six of them. I only completed the first one yesterday. Okay. Because... Let me tell you, these games do not fuck about. Uh, I so have I... seen you play Mega Man, and I have seen the rage that induces, my friend. <laughs> so I I never played the, the Zero Collection, partly because I I had a Game Boy Advance, but I didn't have a lot of games on my Game Boy Advance, and I just I never got around to the, the Zero Collection, because I think it just, you know, when you get into, like, Mega Man 5 and Mega Man 6, you're just you're kind of spinning the wheel at that point. Yeah, it's like police academy movies, you know. There's way more than you think. I'd, I'd never made the comparison, but yes, I guess there that is somewhat <laughs> apt. And I also like even with the Mega Man X series, I've only played the first couple. Um, so you know, one of the things when I start streaming that I want to do is I want to go through basically Mega Man one, two, eleven, where I've played all those eleven, and then do the X series, which I think is eight of them, and then do the Zero series, which I think is six of them. Okay, so you want people to watch you have a meltdown. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, one of the things that I was reading about from someone who played through them on Twitter, it was like, basically, if you play the X series, it's a little bit like that, but the bosses are, by and large, uh, are just they're a lot more of a challenge. And one of the things that I liked about the, uh, the collection series that they've done, that I remembered with the... Um, I think they did. I can't remember which collection series, but they had like save states basically. Uh, or certainly, if you were playing on the, um, if you ever played them on the 3DS, there was a save state fe feature. So you know, if you got to a certain point, you could just save state and then carry on from there. Because the Mega Man games are very unforgiving for checkpoints. They basically don't exist. You there's usually like one kind of midway checkpoint in the level. There's the checkpoint which is just before the boss, and that's it. And they're also very unforgiving when it comes to lives. And usually what would happen is if you, you know, if you died, you go back to the checkpoint up until the point that you run out of lives, and then you would just have to start that level all over again. And usually oh a, lo a lot of the time, <laughs> a lot of time, by the time you got to the boss, you were already like at maybe two points of health back. So you, you basically, you've already lost a life. Um, yeah, they're, they don't fuck around. And so I came into this kind of thinking about that and... I quickly realized that if I wanted to get through this series in any time soon, um, the, the checkpoint feature that they have is they basically added more checkpoints throughout the level. They're a lot more forgiving with it. So it's kind of weird. They've got like the actual in-game checkpoint that was in the original series, which was just basically after each level, you could save your game at that point. Um, but then there were, in this remake, they've put kind of in-game checkpoints within the levels as well. Uh, but that means you kind of have to remember what your last save point was, because sometimes you'd load up the game and you'd lo load from the wrong save point and it would take you to like a you know, a thing that you'd done 10 minutes ago or whatever. Yeah, so you have to be smart with your save scum. Uh, it's, it's not as bad as that. I mean, for the most part, I just would work off of the kind of new checkpoints. And the best thing about that as well is with the new checkpoints, they don't take into account uh, lives, basically. So, it, you know, it definitely reduces the difficulty, but the, the level design is challenging enough, and particularly the bosses are challenging enough that you kind of don't care about the fact that you... The, the whole concept of lives is made redundant. And I, I kind of just treated the game at this point like a, a Mega Man or Rayman Origins where, you know, like, death is... Death will happen, you know. Death is just a part of the game. 
and you just go with the trial and error of trying to take down the bosses because lord almighty if i tried to complete that game on three lives it would never have happened but the bosses definitely they are so one of the things that happened with the i can't remember where in the x series i think like specific bosses had it but certainly with this game that i've noticed when you get to the boss so usually like i don't know what your knowledge or history with mega man is but you know you get to the end level and you'd have a boss and certainly in the original Mega Man series, you would just be in kind of like the one confined square area. Uh, the screen, screen would never scroll at all, so you knew exactly where, you know, the boss was at all times. And you just kind of had yeah. to figure out their AI, AI pattern yeah. to take them down. Traditional, like, arcade uh, platform uh, boss fight. For yeah, them. pretty much. What they do, certainly with the Zero series, is that the area that you fight in is a hell of a lot bigger. And depending on which boss you're taking on, you know, would kind of determine how wide the area of the environment you would be fighting in. And now for some of those bosses, that was fine. Uh, because some of them, like there's one, like a basically a massive elephant who takes up most of the screen. And you can kind of see him coming from a mile away and his attacks aren't too bad. But certainly towards the end of the game, like the final boss in his first stage... A lot of the time you can't see where he is where he's coming from off the screen and actually there's another boss as well that it's just it's impossible to track them and they just come flying out of nowhere and it's that kind of like instant reaction you need to do where zero has like a dash which will, will dash you forward and if you can nail it most of the time you'll avoid the the boss but you have to be it's it's sudden you know it's like instincts that you have to have to to avoid those attacks and it's one of those things, again, where it's, it's a trial and error that every time you die, you learn something different or something new about the attack pattern. And it's one of the things that I, I, that I like about that series and I like about games, specifically Cuphead. You know, Cuphead is the prime modern example where every time you take on a boss, you'll probably die like the first 30 or 40 times. But each time you learn something new about a specific pattern. And, you know, a boss may only have like three attack patterns that it works but there are like different intricacies to it where, you know, maybe the boss only attacks you after a, a certain amount of time or maybe it attacks you depending on what you do, um, which is definitely the case with some Mega Man bosses. And so I love that kind of idea of, you know, death is an absolute, but it's not the end and you, you learn from it each time. And uh, certainly towards the end of the game, I was just fucking losing my mind because the final boss is split into two stages and uh, he there's no like in-game checkpoint between those two stages. So you basically have to take on kind of two bosses in one go. And I got to the point that I got so stuck on his final form that I had to go back. And the thing that Mega Man games do is that after you get to like towards the end of the game, you'll do like a boss rush where you'll take on the eight bosses from the game kind of one after the other though there'll be like a kind of like a rest point between each one but you effectively take on one after the other and i got to the final boss of the game but i had no um like health packs and you can have three health packs uh, and there are different kind of upgrades as well and i had none and i realized that like maybe eventually i would get to the point where i could take him on but it just wasn't happening but the last chance that I had to get those health packs was before the eight bosses. So I basically went, fuck it. I'll go and do the eight bosses again so I can get my three health packs. Which meant I had to do the eight bosses without using any of those health packs. And then take on the final boss again. And then about three hours later, I finally got there. And I had a fucking, I had a great time with it. I loved it. Because I'm a sick, sick man.
<laughs> I was gonna say that that sounds uh, sadistic to me. It's, it's, I like when you were talking about Cuphead and you were just like, you know, before you beat a boss, you might die <laughs> 20 or 30 <laughs> times. And like my head just went into my hands like, what people enjoy that. That sounds miserable for yeah, me. Yeah, I look, I've, I've never claimed to be normal. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I'm glad I'm coming to this series. One of the, the problems that I have with, that I noticed with the X games and certainly into the Zero games by the look of, the looks of it, is they really try to kind of hammer home this story that they're trying to tell. Like the original Mega Man games, it's like, look, there's Mega Man, there's Dr. Wily, he wants to take over the world, sure, whatever, you know. It's the Nintendo games, you don't really do story. Wasn't there a game where, like, all the bosses were named after, was it, like, Seasons or something? Or? Uh, there was the the Game Boy games, they had them where they were named after Planets. Planets, yeah. that was it. But, so, with this one, and, like, it's kind of started with Mega Man X, and it carries over to this, because this is, like, a spin-off series. And there's this whole thing about replicants and androids and replicants that turn into mavericks that are the bad androids. And there's this kind of... Uh, there's elements of fascism i guess in there and and genocide and it's you know it really tries to go with some heavy-handed stuff but it's a fucking mega man game for crying out loud and the problem that you run into with these types of games and certainly for me is there'll be like five minutes of text and conversation and i'm just hammering the a buttons like i want to get to the bit where i do the platforming i don't care about this story and that's probably on me, and I, I guess I should at least try and appreciate that they're trying to tell this story, but it's so, it, it gets so, because the Mega Man games, like the, the design of them, it's very Japanese, it's very anime, I just, I kind of lose interest pretty quickly. And uh, and we've seen with Celeste, it's possible to do that type of game and tell a story and, and get kind of investment in it, but uh, I don't know, I just, I was, I was getting flashbacks of bad 90s anime when I was going through going through the first of them but the platforming is awesome so that's all i care about i don't yeah i don't sit around and think about you know what i think is gonna win uh best story of the year it's whatever mega man game yeah comes out honestly year. you you go through the x series and the zero series and you're just like okay someone sat down and watched blade runner at some point and went all right i know let's bolt this onto mega man and that's basically what it is yeah that that's not what i'd be looking for for a mega man experience so yeah, yeah. fair enough but as long as the platforming yeah. is is fun it's and it's top choice, top appealing, drop. it's appealing to the madman within you who wants to who wants to get it absolutely spot on. So yeah. All right, let's Good stuff, let's uh, spend a, just a, a few minutes, I guess. Uh, we'll talk about what we've been watching because uh, I know you watched Dark Waters and I haven't seen it yet, and I want to see it, and I want to know if it's as good as I think it is. Okay, so is it as good as you think it is? It, how how good do you think it I'm is? I'm going for a solid like four out of five. You know, when I go to Letterbox afterwards, I'm thinking this is going to be at least a four star rating. It is that. Excellent. I would def right. I would definitely give it a four out of five or an eight out of ten or a eighty out of a hundred or whatever you want to say, just on the strength of uh, Mark Ruffalo's performance alone. But it's um it's a very well acted movie. It's a very compelling movie. It, it's it's a movie where uh, despite there not being, I mean, you watch a lot of films that are kind of about situations, and you think sometimes that they're like, okay, there's there's not a lot of kind of character development in this or whatever. But at the, and there's there's not an awful lot of of um, 
there's not an awful lot of, of development of, with Mark Ruffalo, really. It's it's a lot of him just trying to figure out um, what's going on with this with the situation. So like Anne Hathaway is in the movie, and I think it's probably one of the easiest paychecks she's <laughs> ever got in her life uh, because she she's just kind of there. She's his like suffering wife, but uh, yeah, Mark Mark Ruffalo, his the performance and his reactions to the situation that he is in. Uh, and the, the narrative of the story is enough to carry it. And if you don't really know a lot about it, Mark, I suggest just doing no research whatsoever. Um, and it is actually a pretty frightening story uh, about... <laughs> about. I feel like I've seen, let's say, four or five movies in the last year just about legal system in America and corporations in America just being absolutely shocking. Is it I I'm, uh, I'm guessing you're talking about the, the the likes of official secrets and just mercy. Yeah, there's just mercy. Yeah, there's there's a couple and you just think, "Oh god, like fuck." And then you see things like making a murderer. Uh, when they see us on Netflix is a huge tick piece uh for anybody. I I would go and watch that and um, rec- heavily recommend that, but yeah. So, Dark Waters. The the very basic story is uh, a man. So M- Mark Ruffalo is from West Virginia. Uh, that's where he kind of grew up. That's where his grandparents and stuff are from. And a guy who's a local farmer comes to him and he says, you know, there's a new landfill that's opened up and they said there's no chemicals in there, but there definitely is because they've been killing all my cows. And at first he's kind of like, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't know if I want to get involved in this because he is a lawyer who defends um, corp- like chemical companies, basically. He's like there to protect chemical companies. Uh, and a, a massive chemical company in this movie, uh, DuPont, are kind of being wooed as potential clients for this firm. So initially he's like, do I really want to do this? And uh, as things develop during the movie, you find that he very much does want to do this. And it's frightening. It's a frightening story. It's a it's a very depressing movie in in what you find out about and what actually happened and the, and the process of it all. Um, but it is kind of essential watching, I think, just to see kind of what... If, if people are left open to just kind of do what they want and make their own rules it's, it's amazing that Leinster corporations will go to just not give a shit about the welfare of the people that they're trying um in a way that they're trying to help with you know it's a lot about the production of teflon you know just for non-stick coating on pans but if the light if the price for non-stick coating on pans is uh, lots of people getting horrifying cancers then uh don't feel like that's a price worth paying so yeah it's it's a great movie it's a depressing topic it's a mark ruffalo masterclass. it's at least four out of five stars all right i yeah i'm gonna put that on my uh, list oh, of films to see at some point a dear god watch when they see us oh my god that is uh yeah that's a fantastic it's a four-parter on netflix it's about a bunch of boys uh from new york who get caught up in something and then basically blamed for uh for an assault of a woman and um, that they absolutely didn't do even at like the age of 14s and 15s so yeah that's a that's a big thumbs up as well if you got a netflix account uh i do where i've been watching sherlock which i never watched first time around so um maria had and uh she loves benedict's cumberbatch 
and uh, it's hard not it's to. Hard not he's, to. Pretty he's pretty fantastic. He, he really he? is. And uh, I was like, all right, we'll sit down and watch this. And I don't really have like any investment to to Sherlock in any formal fashion. Um, but I figured yeah, she likes it, so we'll sit down. And I've watched up until I haven't done the last episode of series three. Um, I'm told series four is terrible, so maybe I'll avoid that. But like for these. Mm. For these first three series, up until this last episode, which is the one where uh, John Watson gets married, uh, I think the show is incredible. Uh, I'm absolutely loving it. I love the the way that they incorporate uh, imagery and you kind of see what Sherlock is thinking in his mind at times. Uh, I love the just the, the, the interaction between um, Benedict Cumberbatch and, and Martin Sheen. Like, I love those two characters. Like, I love the way they act together. Uh, sorry, not Martin, Martin Freeman. And uh, yeah, I, I think those two have incredible chemistry. I love all the other characters as well. And I think it's a very, f like a genuinely like a laugh out loud show at times. And how uh, Sherlock goes between, between showing elements of humanity, but also just being a complete sociopath. Like I, I love the, 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 the oscillation of that. Uh, and I think you really kind of see that in the uh, the wedding episode where he has to give this best man speech and he kind of goes between giving these real heart touching moments and just you know the the sherlock that we know and then how they incorporate a, a kind of murder case into that as well uh yeah like i could be here for a while talking about it and i don't want to take too much time because this show is quite old at this point but i yeah sherlock is really good how good is andrew scars moriarty by the oh, way oh yeah I, so i the first time i ever saw andrew scott in anything was in Spectre. And, okay, yeah. And, you know, after coming back and seeing this, I was like, yeah, I can see how he got that part in Spectre now. Yeah, because he's incredible. Um, he's also really good in Fleabag, which is a, a high recommend for anyone who hasn't seen it. But I think at this point, pretty much everyone's seen Fleabag. And so. he was very good in that episode of Black Mirror. Yes, he was. Uh, yeah. Uh, it just He's just, yeah, he's fantastic. He... The whole um, season two, I think, is a high point of the show because it's the Reichen back for episode isn't it is the last yep. episode where they're on the rooftop that whole scene like i mean i'm sort of like on tenterhooks while those two are up there just dueling it out like these two like one person who just is because he's a sociopath and he's a very intelligent man he's kind of emotionally detached and there's another person who's there who's just completely singularly obsessed uh and just emotionally unstable and it just is a really interesting contrast of characters and I, I think that they couldn't really have had... There's not too many better actors, I think, out there at the moment they had playing those roles. So to me, the show kind of drastically weakened when we lost Moriarty. Um, I I wasn't as bought in. I think they tried to then make the story or make it more about the relationship between um, Holmes and Watson, which, don't get me wrong, is, is very interesting, but I, I feel like... I, the decision to to get rid of Moriarty was made far too quickly, um, and the only other real high spot as like a sort of foil, I think, for Sherlock is episode two of season four is great because Toby Jones is in it, Mark, and Toby Jones is an absolute just horrific chewing the scenery evil rich bastard um so you will greatly appreciate that 
He's just horrible. He's got these horrible teeth and he's just a very unpleasant man. You, you actually feel your skin crawling when he's on the screen a lot of the time in that episode. So, yeah. Um, the last episode of, of the last series, Series 4, is it's either like spectacular or absolute nonsense and i can't wait to find out whether you find it spectacular or absolute nonsense because it walks a tightrope all the way through the episode so yeah you'll uh you'll, you'll have to let me know what you think but uh i i enjoyed sherlock it's it's over the top it's schlocky but it's a lot of good actors and you know that solid source material really solid yeah source and material. i think the other thing as well is it's one of those things where it could so easily be too clever for its own good and it manages to straddle that line very like yeah. on a very thin line uh but i don't think it, it ever doesn't goes disappear up it. its own no arms, it, right. it doesn't um but it could very easily but again i guess because yeah. of the source material it's working with uh and kind of putting that modern contemporary spin on it yeah i think it does it very very well do you know what's awful is <laughs> Is the John C. Riley, Will Ferrell, Holmes and Watson movie? Never seen it, and I've actually never seen the um, the Robert Downey Jr. ones either. Oh, the Robert Downey Jr. ones are very good. Um, I, I've got nothing bad to say about those, just because it's Robert Downey Jr. and despite not being able to save Doolittle, oh, yeah, I was going to uh, say, I, I, <laughs> I definitely don't blame him for. He definitely can't do uh, a Welsh accent. I know that fucking much. The Sherlock movies with RDJ are great, uh, and it is just very much him being like the singular leading man that he can be in the right scenario, mm. basically. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend watching those. I would recommend just watching how absolutely effing terrible the Holmes and Watson, John C. Riley, because John C. Riley and Will Ferrell, like Step Brothers, is a classic to me of like of comedy because, I mean, it's so brain dead that you think this is actually just pastiche <laughs> at this point of, of people but um Holmes and Watson's just like yeah it's terrible there's like a two minute scene of people vomiting there's like a, a five minute scene of um of, of Will Ferrell jumping onto a marrow it's just absolute nonsense um, <laughs> okay. okay yeah but you've got me thinking about Doolittle now and I'm I thought I'd kind of erased that from my memory, but it's all coming back to me. And what was that fucking thing about? Anyway, L let's, let's move swiftly, move swiftly on. <laughs> on, please. Right. You've got one other thing to talk about that you've seen or been watching. Uh, yes, and it is season five now of Better Call Saul. So, Mark, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Breaking Bad. No. But I feel like it's almost parody at this point of people telling you that Breaking Bad is one of the best shows ever and you should absolutely watch it. Yeah, and you're it... a fool and a clown. And it's a sort of shit that if I hadn't seen Breaking Bad, if people were telling me this, I'm like, I don't want to watch the show just because all the people that seem to tell me to watch it are so smug and self-satisfied about it. It's it's kind of like the Rick and Morty thing where it's like I love Rick and uh, it's, Morty, it's but that, it's, Rick and Morty fans are horrible. Yeah, it's that The Sopranos and The Wire are like the three TV shows I think about where just anyone that's watched it will declare it is the greatest thing that they've ever seen, and maybe they are. And and I'm I'm really like when it comes to watching TV in particular, and you know this, like I'm terrible for watching TV shows. I just 
I don't sit down and watch them uh, because I just I'll end up just playing games or watching YouTube stuff. I just I just don't sit down and watch TV. It's never been my go to. Like the idea of yeah. watching eighty four series of Game of Thrones. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that's not quite Eve. Do you know with Game of Thrones? Um, just go on YouTube and if there's like a fucking twenty twenty five minute of Peter Dinklage's scenes of Game of Thrones, just watch that and it'll probably make you want to watch it because he's. Oh my boy, what a uh, Tyrion just with a, a sharp razor tongue. Anyway, so Breaking Bad, I have to say it, Mark. I'm, I I just want to get it out of the way so I don't become that guy. It is unbelievable. It, it is a masterpiece. I'm not going to say it's the best this, that, or the other ever, but it is fantastic. So when I heard they were doing Better Call Saul, I was like, oh, because I mean, I, I don't know. I love Bob Odenkirk. I think he's incredible. One of the most underrated uh, sketch shows of all time is Mr. Show with Bob and Dave, him and David Cross, uh, aka the guy that says Juicy Juice at the start of the Strokes video for you, Mark, as a reference. Um, like, he's good in the show, he's very good, but can he carry an entire series? And as you can tell from the fact that we're at season five now, Mark, turns out he can carry an entire series. This show is... Like, so Breaking Bad, it was kind of one of those shows that just escalated, escalated, escalated. The situations got more and more perilous, and the show actually carried that pace. Better Call Saul was like a, a considered journey, a character study an understanding of how this man became this sort of parody uh, of a sort of shyster kind of lawyer who, you know, it, it really has no interest in practicing law correctly and is just there to make money and sort of serve criminals. And it, it it's kind of heartbreaking because it's been a real, up to this point, a real emotional breakdown of why he is the way he is and his relationships and it's just an acting clinic. Bob Odenkirk, Rhea Seahorn, and Michael McKean, who um, is sadly no longer in the series for, for reasons I'm not going to go into because uh, I want people to watch it. It just, it's incredible. And they managed to find the right balance of keeping you interested and giving you that little bit of action every now and then, that little hit to just kind of keep a Breaking Bad fan on. And and season five so far, the first three episodes are out and they've just been, it's, they've been so good. And they've, um, they've reached back into the sort of Breaking Bad quiver gently. Like, so, you know, if it's uh, a spinoff of a series that everybody loves, there's always the temptation to just immediately bring in like the big guns, bring in the Brian Cranston's of this world and just, and get him straight into the show. But they haven't done that. What they've done is they've gradually sort of brought in various characters who were around the fringes of uh, of Breaking Bad as the season went on and just de- deployed them into the show and done it so well. And the latest being uh, Hank, who who plays Walter White's brother-in-law in there, amazingly played by Dean Norris. So his first appearance in the show, the latest episode, and it just... It, it kind of feels like every time a Breaking Bad character comes in and they're sort of accepted and they do it so naturally and it's just like, you know, seeing an old relative or an old friend just appearing in the show. Even if you know what happens to them and you know that, you know, it might not end the right way or it might end well for them depending on how the show went. Basically, it ended pretty badly for everyone who was in the show regardless. Um, but yeah, it, it's just class, um, a really classy show. 
And it's one of those things you haven't got to have seen Breaking Bad to watch this show. You don't. In fact, if you watch it, it will then make you go and want to see Breaking Bad probably afterwards. But uh, yeah, just fuck. the best acted show on television or in television at the moment by far, I think, is Better Call Saul. Rhea Seahorn and Bob Odenkirk put on a fucking clinic on a weekly basis. So if you ain't on this and you like Breaking Bad especially, you should be should be digesting every second of it because I think there's only maybe one more series left after this. I, I think the thing with Breaking Bad is that from what I know about the show, it sounds just like a real kind of something that will reduce me to just an anxious mess. And it's why, and it's <laughs> there is an element of that, and yes. it's why I've not seen Uncut Gems because I feel like that show would just give me a full on fucking panic attack. Yeah, uh, you do definitely feel the weight of the burden and Uncut Gems of of Adam Sandler's predicament and how he's got himself into it. But the interesting transition is you feel anxiety and you feel deeply for for the character of Walter White in the first series, kind of second series. But then as the show goes on, the anxiety of the show is removed and you just the transformation of this guy from somebody who's, you know, really lost because they, it, I mean, it starts the first episode, it starts, he's, he's been diagnosed with cancer, essentially. So there's that's hanging over him the whole time anyway. But it just, it, it transitions away from that. And it's a man who just completely becomes this like self-obsessed uh, just nasty, disgusting, psychopathic human being who you you just wonder how. You watch episode of series one and then watch episode of series five and you've got like a maudlin, sorry for himself, browbeaten chemistry teacher turning into like the biggest evil drug kingpin. And the, the genius of the show, Mark, is that it never feels juddery when they're doing that transition. So yeah, that anxiety element is there in the first series or so. So yeah, if it's hard to get through that, I get it, but it is worth it in the long run and it is a good show. And yeah, I'm not going to be like hitting you over the head with it over and over again, but eh, check it out one way. And if you can't be asked, you can't be asked. I'm sure Maria will watch it and then in two years time, I'll get to it. Uh, we should end this episode talking a little bit about the... Uh, we started the show talking about the coronavirus, and we'll end talking about it. Um, we People were kind of wondering about what was going to happen with certain events, and in particular GDC, uh, which is really, you know, it is one of the biggest events in the, the kind of gaming calendar. And it's not so much about announcements or events, but it's it's one of those things for... It's a networking event, basically. You know, it's somewhere where you'll find a lot of indie developers go where or uh, people either working on projects or people want to get work you know they'll go there to sell themselves basically Uh, and i think a lot of people miss that they have this misconception about what gdc actually is and we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks all the big um hot shots have been kind of bailing out sony microsoft and everyone and then uh, a few days ago they announced that the event had been postponed and then it had been cancelled and this really has hit uh, a lot of the kind of indie development industry part of the industry because you know there's a lot of stuff there that is just simply not refundable flights hotels you know we're talking about san francisco one of the most expensive places in the world um and these are people that you know they bank they invest a lot into this with the hopes that there will be a you know return investment somewhere in the future but with this kind of stuff lost um you know we've seen a lot of um 
uh, incentive funding incentives to try and help people out uh, that's been really awesome and it's been really good a good an amazing thing to see uh, within the industry and I don't know how much to say. I mean, you've got this, you've got E3 apparently is still going to go ahead, but, you know, I guess we'll kind of wait and see what happens with that. Um, uh, remember how I was going to sign up to E3? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so I um, I actually investigated it. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. <laughs> but, like, so you need, like, a, a, a letter, like, to have proof of employment or, or something along those That's lines. That's okay. Me and Dave get... can give you that. Accredited, yeah. I was wondering if you guys would write me a letter, like on a proper letterhead, to prove that I am an employee. Of, Wait, does that mean uh, I have to give you a salary? I yeah. I mean, I don't mind. You can pay me in uh, you can pay me in rock shandies <laughs> if you want. <laughs> you can just send those over from the Republic, please. Uh, but yeah, uh, so it's possible. So if you just get me that letterhead, I'll get myself on a plane to uh, to Los Angeles and. We can sort it all out. But like we've we've had that. We had the announcement from uh, Syria R earlier today that I think for like the whole of March or up until a certain point in April, uh, all of their games are going to be behind closed doors. Um, yep. James Bond's been James pushed Bond has been November. pushed back to November for what was the what the fuck did they say? I I need to read that statement again because it made me laugh because uh, it was so fucking like corporate speak. Uh, I think it's weird because, like, they kind of put out there a few days ago, or that was picked up in the press, like, oh, fans want James Bond pushed back due to coronavirus. And I was like, I don't actually feel like I've seen anybody say this. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's postponed. So I wonder so if it was like... So here we go, like, here we go. It was MGM, Universal, and Bond producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli announced today that after careful consideration and thorough evaluation of the global theatrical marketplace, the release of No Time to Die will be postponed until November 2020. Like, all they had to say is, look, we can't release this in April because no one in China is going to go and see this. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much it. You yeah. know, like, we're not fucking stupid. Um, but anyway, slightly back on point. Um, so this sucks. Uh, it's awesome that we've seen the industry come together to try and help these people out. I guess the thing that I want to know is oh, E3. Like, what is going to happen there? Because let's be honest, it's not exactly the most hygienic of fucking events anyway, considering everyone ends up coming back with some sort of illness or whatever. Uh, and I'm just as worried about going to a wrestling event this weekend. Um, at this moment, do you think E3 will happen? Yeah, I think E3 will happen. I think people that... I mean, it just depends how America contains the breakdown. Like, do they let journalists from other countries like me fly in and and be part of the event? Or do they just say, no, nah, fuck this, closed borders. Like, I think that's been Trump's approach to a lot of situations. <laughs> it's just to just shut the borders down yeah. and not let anyone in and then not let any problems in kind of thing. Uh, I don't know what America's current uh, stance is with the coronavirus, but uh, I'd imagine it still takes place. And look, at the end of the day, if people are being more conscientious, if people are like washing their hands, they're making sure that they're not, um, you know, that, that they're using gels and even masks or whatever, like it's, it's probably a good thing regardless of the coronavirus, just people being generally a bit more healthy, you know. So I, I can't imagine that they would postpone an event that lots of people would want to travel in for. 
Uh, I'd be furious if I was a football fan in Italy, you know, like not getting to enjoy my football would be miserable. I don't know what I would do at that point. Um, like having been to two football games in the space of the last sort of seven days and not contracted any viruses, having been multiple times on the tube every pretty much week in the last few weeks as well. So it's just interesting to see it. if it's like a sudden surge in outbreaks, then yeah, it might just be a sort of everyone work from home kind of type situation. But I mean, we've seen cases pick up in in england over the last i want to say 48 hours or so uh yeah. and so i can definitely see a case by i don't know whether by the the end of this weekend or by next weekend where they might think of something uh similar for because i know they they cancelled the island italy uh game uh last weekend i think it was the rugby, here, the rugby game, game. Yeah. so i'm you know i'm curious to see if this something similar happens with with the the premier league yeah, I hope not, uh, just because, yeah, that's one of the few things uh, that that consistently, like, <laughs> bring me joy in life watching football and obviously put, like, films and video games and music and stuff in there as well. But, yeah, that would that would kind of suck, but if it, it it's a necessary evil, then, yeah. I mean, it, you think about it, it brings into the European Championship, kind of, and pretty much any event. I mean, the Olympics. Like I think the Olympics is the yeah, the, big the Olympics one. is in Japan, isn't it? Yeah. So in in August. So ho- I mean, I'm pretty sure they're hoping that they'll have like a a bit of a lid on it by then, or at very least some sort of maybe like a inoc- inoculation. Sorry, can't get that word out from the virus yeah i was listening to there's a podcast i listen to called uh tldr news and um they were talking about you know (laughs) is it like 30 seconds long (laughs) no 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 it's just they they do really good kind of episodes uh they're about 10 minutes long where they try to take you know whatever piece and put it in kind of like a short form thing that you can like bite-sized digestible pieces uh so they're really good for that and they're very kind of like neutral so they're you know they're not like loud think pieces they're just like here here is the information as it is so which i appreciate and um they were just talking about like you know the containment of this and whether um you know is it just a thing where just like everyone fucking gets it and then it's done and we're done with it or which but problem with that is a lot of people will die or you know we try to do this kind of slow containment thing which gives us more time to basically find a cure but you know there's a lot of work that goes into that and a lot of cooperation and means that we're probably going to end up with this thing where you know a lot of stuff gets cancelled over the next couple of months and uh it's you know it's very much looking that way i'm stunned i'm genuinely stunned that the the show i'm going to or the events that i'm going to this weekend are still going ahead but you know i guess germany is one of the places where it's not kind of picked up yet so you know it's it's the flu it's not going to kill us but for other people i mean it might kill some people but it hopefully. has killed some people yeah i mean hopefully. but i don't need to spend 25 quid on a fucking uh surgery mask i know that much yeah exactly yeah you go see the whole podcast was she being outraged about 25 euros and with some stuff in the middle there we go well on that note uh thank you very much for listening this has been episode one something 157 i think i can't remember of links to the cast uh so <laughs> we were gonna do a special on the daniel craig james bond series but i guess that can wait for a fucking while now yeah that so that so uh, the coronavirus has actually struck this podcast because <laughs> now we're having to push that back as well no one can escape me and dave are then gonna cooking something up on uh on a, on a movie series uh that, that might we, we might get to it at some time in the future
future and something to do with being social and having popcorn and all of that. Hey, good stuff. So, how about that? Yeah. Well, and if that comes back, I, uh, I and actually, me and a uh, friend of the show, Brian Rose, we were going to do a New Japan Cup prediction show, and uh, yeah, that obviously went out the fucking window as well. So currently, plans me and Dave will probably do a February wrap up recap uh, while we are in Germany at some point. And then we'll probably be back with this show in two weeks' time. Hopefully all of us will still be here, fingers crossed. Uh, but in the meantime, you can catch the show on all available podcasting platforms, as well as on YouTube. And you can find us over on Instagram, so give us a follow. And uh, give us a follow on Twitter as well, because you know we had some good conversation today about the PlayStation 2 that I very much enjoyed. Uh, I've been Mark Robinson. As always, he's been Jack Lazell, and we will see you again next time. <laughs>